So as you've opened up to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, I need your help with a picture this morning. This will require a little bit of feedback from you. Somebody tell me, what's going on in this picture that doesn't quite look right? What doesn't quite look right? Sean got it, I think. What doesn't look right? He's pumping gas into a Tesla. So a Tesla is an electric vehicle. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know where he's from. But I do know that putting gas in a Tesla is not going to do good things. It's an electric vehicle. It's not made to run on gas. I'm pretty sure this is worse than talking on your cell phone while you're pumping gas. I don't know what happened to this car afterwards. I don't, I, I don't know the backstory of what ended up occurring. But I know that Tesla is not going to run on gas, just like my Chevy Impala is not going to run if I plug it in. It's just not going to work. That's not how it's made to run. A Tesla needs electricity. My Impala needs gasoline. As believers, we are filled with Christ. We run on Christ. Nothing else fills us. Nothing else will make us go. We work with Christ and in Christ alone. Nothing else works. Just like that Tesla is not going to work without electricity and it's not going to work with gas, we're not going to work without Christ. So that's where we come to in our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 15. I'm going to read them in in its entirety for us, and then we'll break that down. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So first, we'll take a look at verses 6 through 7. We're to walk in him. We're to walk in him. The verses open up with therefore. So anytime you see therefore, you've got to look back. What is the therefore, therefore? What is he talking about? What is Paul referring to when he says therefore? So we've got to look back at verse 5. We preached on this, or I preached on this last time. You've got to look back at verse 5 and see what's he talking about. So he's, he's excited to see their good order and their firmness of faith in Christ. He's excited to see that they are walking just as they are taught, just as they were taught. They're walking in that faith. They are firm. They are steadfast in that faith. They're standing in good order. They are firm. They're walking in him. So he says, walk in him. How are we to walk in him? Well, just as they were taught. In the same way that you received him, in the way that you were taught, so walk in him. How did they receive him? 
received him by faith. They received him by faith. So they're to walk in him in faith. We don't walk by sight in this world. As believers, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. If we were to walk by sight in this world, we would be just as sad, just as depressed, just as hopeless as the rest of the world around us. We would have no hope beyond this world because we'd just be walking by what we see. And what we see is pretty dark, pretty bleak, pretty discouraging. But we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. That's how we received him. We received him by faith. We didn't have all the pieces together. We didn't understand the intricacies of the gospel. We didn't understand the depths of who God was. But we received him as a child, a simple faith coming to him. So we walk in him in that simple faith. It's not always an easy walk. He doesn't say that he's always going to bring us to easy, simple places. Sometimes the places where he takes us are hard. Sometimes the places where he takes us, you don't understand what he's doing, but you can trust him because he's good. I was thinking of the Chronicles of Narnia as I was preparing this and thinking of the children that are there with the beavers. I don't know if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, but they're there with the beavers in their lodge talking about Aslan, and they say, uh, is he safe? They say, of course not. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. It's the way it is with God. Of course he's not safe, as we think of safe, as we want to think of safe, but he's good. And we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We can trust him no matter what he brings us to, no matter what he's bringing us through, as hard as it might be, as difficult as it might be, we walk by faith. We received him by faith. We walk by faith. We don't always see those pieces and how each of them fit together, but we walk by faith. And this isn't something that we can just, okay, I'm going to put on Christ and walk by faith. I'm going to put him on first thing Sunday morning. You know, that's not something that we do. This walk by faith is a continuous, ongoing action. It's not something you just pick up and you take on, okay, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna walk in Christ today. It's Sunday morning. I had to pick him up. I'm going to put him on, you know, get all ready. I'm going to go to church. And then I go home from church. I take him off. I don't have to walk in Christ anymore. This is a daily, ongoing action. It does not stop. You can't put it on and take it off. You continue walking in faith continuously. This doesn't always happen in the Church of America Today, I imagine it's the same way around the rest of the world, too, but we know the Church of America here. Too often what happens is we, we walk in faith. We walk in him when we come to church, or we walk in him when we go to our small group, or when we are uh, participating in worship, or listening to a podcast or a sermon or something. But we, we pick and choose, where am I going to walk in him? Is this something that I put on continuously, the daily ongoing action, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening, or do I try to put it on and take it off? It doesn't work that way. It is a daily ongoing action. As you received him by faith, you walk in him by faith. So what does that then look like? How do we do that? We do it by faith, but here's what Paul says. We are to walk in him by faith uh, in Everything that we are 
doing. So how do we do that? We walk by faith in uh, taking this world, the things that we are doing, the things that we are participating in, and we are filtering everything that we do through the lens of Christ. So that means I'm intentional about looking at my life, walking in him, walking by faith, and I'm filtering everything through a Christian worldview, a Christ-tinted set of glasses. I'm looking at this world to walk in him, this daily, ongoing, continuous action, and I'm filtering, what am I going to watch for a movie tonight? Does this draw me closer to the Lord? Does this help me walk in faith, walk in my relationship with him, with the music that I'm listening to? Does this help me to stay grounded in his word and the reality of who he is? have to be so, so, so very careful that we are filtering everything we see in this world, everything we're participating in, in this world through the lens of Christ. Just like if you're colorblind, you're looking at this world and you see things not as they truly are. You are seeing either no color, black and white, gray, or you're only seeing a few colors. So I had a friend growing up, Mike was colorblind. He could see a few colors, but he couldn't see everything. So as we would be as kids, you know, maybe we were doing a craft in one of the kids' clubs or something like that at church, and he'd have to ask me, is that green or is that pink? Or is that yellow or is that red? He couldn't, couldn't tell the difference. So I had to help him to be able to know what the color was. I don't know if they had these glasses when we were kids, but these are glasses that you can purchase to help you to see in color, to be able to see things as they truly are. And if you, if you want to watch some videos that might make you cry, just to see people putting on glasses and for the very first time in their lives, seeing the world in full color, it can be pretty emotional, whether it's a little kid who's getting the glasses or somebody who's lived their whole life and you know they're, they're in their 60s or whatever. They've gone a long time only seeing part of the world. Now they can see in full color. It's the same way with you and I. We don't see this world properly unless we are filtering everything in our walk, our walk of faith, walk in him. We don't see things properly unless we are seeing things through a Christ-centered worldview, a Christ-tinted pair of glasses. We have to see things through him and filtered by him. And who he is is the sole governing factor in our walk. So then what does that walk look like? Well, Paul says it's to be rooted or to be built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So rooted. So this is the idea of a tree, a tree that is planted. You can think of Psalm 1, that tree that is planted by the rivers of water, or the vine, the, the branches that are connected to the vine, that are well planted, bearing fruit. Here's this tree. It is planted. You are rooted, grounded in Christ and grounded in his word. The Greek here has the idea of being permanently planted. This isn't something planted in a flower pot. It's not getting moved around and changed and shifted. It's not a tumbleweed that's just getting blown around wherever the wind takes it. This is a well-grounded, a deeply rooted tree. It is firm in its foundation. It is firm where it is planted. It is drawing its life source from where it is. We are to be that way in Christ and in his word, deeply rooted in who he is, drawing all of our life source from him, from his word. 
not easily uprooted, not easily shifted, not easily blown over by the winds of this world, but deeply rooted, grounded in him. So that's, that's an agricultural idea, but he also goes on to then architecture and talks about being built up, being built up in him, a solid foundation of Christ. You are built on the solid rock of Christ, that chief cornerstone. We are built on him. And we had already looked at Colossians 1, verse 23, where he talks about being stable and steadfast. Colossi, again, being in an earthquake-prone area. There were earthquakes frequently. They needed to have a solid, firm, earthquake-proof foundation. That's who we are to be built on. We are to walk in him, well-grounded, rooted, and then built up in him on that solid foundation, that earthquake-proof foundation of who he is and what his word says. Because this world around us will change. Everything around us changes. But Christ and his word do not change change. We can stay grounded on him, and we're to be established in the faith. This is what we're to be known as, to be known by, as a people of his word, people who walk in him. We're known and represented and, and, uh, and compared or connected to him because we're well established in him. That's what we're known as. That's what we're known by. And we're also to continue as we were instructed. As this Colossian church was instructed, they had good teachers. And then Paul writing to them. They were well taught. Continue in that. Don't wander away from that. Stay connected to that. As you received him, walk in him. You are to be deeply rooted in him. You're to be built up in him, established in him. And if all of that is true for your life, Paul says you're going to be abounding in thanksgiving. And I think all of us can think of somebody that abounds in thanksgiving. No matter what's going on in their life, no matter what the circumstances are, they abound in thanksgiving. And the first person that came to my mind was Pastor Ted. Pastor Ted was one of those people that it didn't matter what kind of pain he was in. It didn't matter what was going on. When you talked to him, he always had a smile for you. And he always had some word that he had spent time in his, in his uh, Bible that morning and something God had shared with him and taught him, a hymn he had been listening to or a sermon he'd been listening to on the radio, he was abounding in thanksgiving. No matter what was going on, he represented this well because he walked in him. He was deeply rooted in him. He was built up in him. He was established in him. So the joy and the thankfulness overflowed through his life. And he wasn't easily swayed by the things of this world. He was not easily taken captive by any other thoughts or ideas or philosophies or tradition or whatever in this world. Because this is where he was grounded. He was grounded in Christ. He was grounded in his word. And so, too, we need to be grounded in God's word so that we're not taken captive by this world. So we're to walk in him, but we're also to be filled in him. Let's read verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority." 
This world is always going to try to capture you. They're always going to be fighting for your attention. They're always going to be trying to capture your allegiance or your money or your life. The world is always going to be after us. That's just a reality of how this is. They're always going to be seeking to come in and put their worldview in and over ours or in addition to ours. Say, okay, you've got your church thing. That's fine. Do your church thing on Sunday. Do it over there. But, you know, catch up with the rest of us. Come on over here. Like, okay, you know, that's fine there. Keep that there. But catch up to the rest of where we're at. They're always trying to capture you and draw you in and either change your worldview entirely or push theirs in and over top of yours. The world is trying to capture you. Same thing's happening to the Colossian church. They have people trying to sneak in to capture these young believers. Paul's addressed them already. They're the Gnostics and the the mysticism that had come in from the East and the Jewish legalist that had tried to come in. And they weren't totally removing Christ from these Colossian churches, from this Colossian church and these young believers. They're adding things to him. They're adding things to Christ. So not just totally removing Christ, but adding things to him. Christ plus anything else is legalism. And legalism is always wrong. So how are they doing that? Well, they were doing it through philosophy and empty deceit. Nothing wrong with philosophy. Nothing wrong with the love of knowledge, the love of truth. Nothing wrong with chasing after that. Nothing wrong with doing your best to be a good scholar, a good student. But often what happens is in our pursuit of knowledge, in our pursuit of understanding, we come to the end of it and find it's just empty deceit. It's just a man-made framework that we try to frame our lives around. And it is just empty deceit at its core. If it's not based in Christ, if it's not based on the truth of his word, it's going to be seen or should be seen, if we're careful, if we're observant, that it's just that empty Deceit. They were trying to draw away these young believers with philosophy and empty deceit. They needed to see it as such. They were trying to draw them away with human tradition. Human tradition has kept people in chains and bondage for thousands and thousands of years. Human tradition destroys churches, destroys believers. Human tradition is what keeps us locked from interacting with the world around us as God would intend us to, to be able to share the gospel because we get locked in this is what church should be. This is what it's supposed to look like. So I grew up in very traditional little Baptist churches. So there were some things that, you know, this is what we did. This is what church was supposed to look like. We had to have red curtains. If we didn't have red curtains, then we couldn't properly worship Jesus. So that was every, every Baptist church that I grew up going to always had red curtains. I don't know why red, but that's what it was. Little things that show up that, you know, we think, how did that become a tradition? Why is that so important? So we have to be so careful. And sometimes this hits really close to home of things that we hold on to that we love about church. or We love about our, our uh, Christian heritage and tradition, but it's not based in God. It's not based in his word. And through CEF and the chances that Jenny and I had to go worship with believers from around the world, we're able to see some of those things that for us were always human traditions kind of get broken apart and to be seen for what they are. It's just a human tradition. It's nothing biblical. 
Too often what we do is take human tradition and say it's biblical, and what we need to do is we need to go straight and find out what's biblical and make that a tradition. That's something we always do. But what, what we often did is when they're in the little Baptist churches, we didn't raise our hands. It's been fun to see some people, you know, as you're worshiping, you're raising your hand. Pastor Ted was always good for that. Right at the moment when it's most going to just hit you right here, not in your microphone, but right in your heart, where you're like, wow, okay, God's working and moving in him, and that gets you going. He was good to raise his hand. But growing up in the little Baptist churches I was in, you didn't raise your hand unless you had a prayer request or you were offering to stack chairs. So you just didn't raise your hand. But Jenny and I have had the chance to go down to the international conference that CEF held every three years in North Carolina. And uh, workers from all around the world would come together to worship together, to have training together, fellowship together. It was a fantastic time. And they would often have different parts of the world, different cultures lead in prayer or in worship. And it was incredible to see the Koreans worship because they prayed like this, both hands up to God, shouting to him. It was absolutely incredible. A little sheltered Baptist upbringing, that would have been wrong. You don't do that. It was incredible to see them worshiping God and praying like that, all of themselves going out in their prayers to the Lord. We didn't dance in church. That just did not happen. There was no reason ever for there to be dancing in church. But through those conferences and then through the different work that I was able to do with the African communities here in the greater Portland area, and then as Jenna and I had chances to go do missions trips uh, in Jamaica, we got to see dancing being a huge part of worship and seeing the, whether it's the Caribbean culture or the African countries and just how they worship the Lord, they worship with, them, with their whole selves. And I don't know, I don't know, in the scripture it's full of places where people danced to worship the Lord, but somewhere in there in my Baptist upbringing, we just didn't dance. So to be a part of those cultures was incredible to see them worshiping the Lord in what was always a human tradition. You don't do it, but it was them worshiping the Lord with all of themselves and seeing it just for what it was. It was just a human tradition. It wasn't based in scripture. I still didn't dance with them. I just kind of flapped my elbows. But those walls and those pieces of removing what's a human tradition and what's truly found in God's word, what keeps us locked in bondage, keeping us from truly worshiping the Lord or fellowshipping with other believers as we should. Human tradition should never keep us from fully worshiping the Lord. We always have to be careful to come right back and be deeply rooted and grounded in his word and to be able to look with critical eyes at how we are worshiping or how we're serving the Lord and saying, is this something that is my own? I've added this, or my tradition, or my culture has added this, or does Christ say that? Does his word say that? They were trying to sneak into this Colossian church and add human tradition to keep them in bondage. Adding something to Christ, it's always going to be legalism. It's always going to be wrong. The other thing that they were doing was they were sneaking in with the elemental spirits, of the world. So there's a couple of ways that we can understand what do they mean by elemental spirits of the world. That could mean just the way the world runs, just the ABCs of the world. This is just how things work. But that changes over time. If you let just the basics of how the world works, that everybody, you know, this is what society does, this is how we do things, that changes over time. 
that shifts and that, that adjusts to what culture you're in or where you are. It changes things in our, in our society like what does marriage look like? It changes things like uh, how do you identify your gender? How, all kinds of things. It changes and it shifts. So not, don't let the elemental spirits, the basics of the world of how society runs, come in and add to your walk with the Lord. Don't let that change how you see God's word and who he is. Don't let those elemental spirits change your walk. Christ plus something else will always be wrong. It could also mean, and I think this is the deeper sense where Paul is going with this, the spiritual, demonic, or angelic forces of this world. I think that because of where he goes in the next section that we'll talk about next time, about the worship of angels. But being careful not to let that be added into your faith. There are definitely certain faiths that have an angelic worship component to it or a demonic influence to it. And there are clearly the occults out there that are very demonic in nature. Don't let that sneak in and be added to your faith. Be watchful. They will always try to capture you and add that to your faith. There's nothing that we bring to the table that we can add to our faith. There's nothing that we bring to it. It is all filled in Christ because he is full. There's nothing that we bring in our humanness to him. We are just poor paupers coming to him. We bring nothing in and of ourselves because the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. Christ is enough. There's nothing else that you and I need. He is enough. He is 100% totally God. And again, Paul is attacking the Gnostics here where he talks about him containing the fullness of the deity bodily, a physical body. Those Gnostics believing that matter was wrong and your physical body was wrong. So how could God inhabit a human body? And yet he did. Christ came. Christ was 100% fully and completely God. We spent a long time talking about that in the previous sermons here in Colossians, talking about the fullness of who Christ is and all that that means. And if he is fully and completely, totally filled with deity, he's God. That changes so many things for us. He's God. There's nothing that we can bring to the table to fill something that isn't empty, He is totally and completely God. So why would we look anywhere else to fill what isn't empty? Here's what John Calvin says. He says, whoever's not satisfied with Christ alone strives after something beyond absolute perfection. Who we are is entirely because of who he is. There's not a single piece of our salvation, of our sanctification, or our glorification that is not first found in Christ. Every single piece of it is first found in him. We bring nothing. We may try to add things. We might seek to supplement our faith with a reading over here or a particular person we like to listen to over here. But if what they're offering or what you're reading that they've written or what they're preaching is not first found in Christ, it's not first found in his word, then it shouldn't be a part of your walk. It shouldn't be a part of your faith. There's nothing that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we can do to add to our faith that's not first found in him. Again, Calvin says this, 
when we see salvation whole and every single part is found in Christ, we must beware lest we derive the smallest drop from somewhere else. We are filled to the full in him. There is nothing we bring to the table. We are filled in him. We are to walk in him. We are filled in him. And because we are walking in him and we are filled in him, we can be victorious in him. That brings us to 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So why, why circumcision? Why does Paul bring us to this? We've just finished talking about being filled in Christ. Filled, he's filled with deities, totally, completely God. And he is the head over all things, the rule of all authority, the majesty and the authority of who God is. And then Paul jumps straight to circumcision. So why that kind of a funny switch? Well, when you understand what circumcision is, it helps you to understand this. It was that mark that God gave the Jewish people, starting with Abram, giving them that mark, an external sign of an inward change. They were set apart as his own. They were circumcised. They were God's people. They belonged to him. It was a external or an, yeah, visible external mark of an inward change of who, who they were connected to, whose family they were a part of. If you weren't circumcised, you weren't part of God's family. It was supposed to have been the outward sign of an inward change. But what had happened over time is that it was no longer the sign of an inward change. It was just another hoop to jump through. It was just another form of legalism. It was just another thing for them to do to be able to exclude people. Oh, you're not circumcised? Okay, I don't have to associate with you. And that snuck into the early church as well. We see Peter in the book of Acts, where he's not associating with those who are not circumcised, and he's only eating with those who were, those that had been uh, part, of the, uh, part of Judaism, that had now come to Christ, but they had met the requirements of the law as well. So Paul's, or Peter's only eating with them, and Paul has to confront him on it. So this became just another form of legalism for them, another form of legalism so that he could, or they could exclude people. But that's never what God intended it to be. It was never supposed to be a, just another way to be able to add something to your faith because it never brought anything to them. God always intended this to be the outward sign of an inward change. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, here's what God says. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And there's the difference There's the difference. The circumcision is uh, uh, in Christ is a circumcision of the heart. It's made by Christ, not by human will, not by man, but it's made 
by Christ. It's a circumcision of the heart. You are marked by him in a very final way, a very real way. You are marked by him in a way that you can't change that. You can't say, oops, I don't think I wanted to do that. It's final. He has marked you as his own. And to keep it a little little less graphic, think about it like having your appendix out. So if you go in and you have that surgery to remove your appendix, they don't pull that out, look at it, and say, maybe we should have put that back. I mean, that doesn't happen. It's out. It's final. Circumcision was final. When you are circumcised in the heart by Christ, he's marked you as his own. You are his. There's no going back on that. You live like you are his. Live like that is final. You are marked as his own. There's a finality to that. He set us apart. He says, this one's mine. We belong to him. In the same way there's finality in that, the other symbol that Paul uses here is baptism. And there's two senses, again, to look at this. We think of baptism in what we think of the immersion into water. So we think about that as being associated with Christ, a visible outward sign of an inward change. Imparts nothing to us. It is simply a demonstration to the rest of the world and to the church watching on. I belong to Christ. This represents the new life that I have in him and I want the world to see it. So our old self, our dead uh, sinful body goes under the water. We come up in newness of life in Christ. It's a visible outward sign of that inward change that has already occurred. That's how we see it. They also would have seen, and I think the bigger sense for, for this Colossian church, is they would have seen baptism as being associated with Christ and everything that was included in that. No water involved but being baptized into Christ, fully and completely associated with him in everything that's involved. They were associated with him in such a way that what Christ experienced physically, they got the benefit of spiritually. And that's how it is for us. The suffering he went through physically paid the price for us to reap the benefits of that spiritually. We are associated with him. We have been baptized into him. The victory over sin and death that he achieved, we get the benefit of. We are associated with him. Because of what he did, because we are baptized into him, we get the benefit of the work that he has done. And that's a reality for us. We have victory over sin and death because we were dead. Paul says there in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We were dead. We were dead in our sin. We had a just death sentence because of our sin. Our character and nature of who we were deserving forever punishment for our sin because of how horrible and terrible sin is in relation to the perfect holiness of God. But Jesus paid that price. Jesus paid that price once for all. God didn't cheapen our debt by saying, well, we'll just forget about it. We'll just forget that there ever was a debt. When you know, just, okay, we'll forgive you this time. Go on and and live your life. He didn't didn't just forgive the debt. He didn't just act as if it never, never was. There was a debt that we had to pay. And by requirement of the law, it had to be paid. And Jesus paid it. He paid 
the price, that full debt he paid on the cross. Here's what it says in Hebrews 9.12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law in its entirety, that the law demanded, the Levitical law demanded that there be a sacrifice for sin, that something had to die, that blood had to be spilled. And if you were in the Old Testament or or in Judaism, you would come to the priest, you'd bring your sacrifice, he would do his thing, that lamb or that goat or calf would be killed, that sacrifice would be made, the blood would be spilled, and that sin would be forgiven. But you'd have to do it again. You'd have to do it over and over and over and over again because it was never enough. The high priest would go in once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people for the year. But it wasn't enough. He'd have to come back year after year after year after year. But Jesus paid it all by the character and nature of who he is. His sacrifice was enough. He paid the price for all eternity, securing eternal redemption for us, for those who receive Christ as our Savior, taking that free gift that he offers to us so costly, but offered so freely to us. He secured eternal redemption for us. By the character and nature of who he is, he only had to do it once. He doesn't have to go back again and again and again and again. He did it. He paid that debt. It wasn't a cheapened debt. It wasn't a cheapened forgiveness. The law was met. Jesus fulfilled the law. He beat the legalist at their own game. He fulfilled the law. He didn't go above the law. He didn't go around the law. He didn't go under the law. He fulfilled the law. His blood was spilled. There was a blood sacrifice for sin, and it was Christ. He paid that debt in his death, nailing it to the cross, and then he rose again. He beat the rulers and authorities of this world, putting them to open shame. He also beat the rulers and authorities of this world in the spiritual sense. For all intents and purposes, Satan is the ruler of this world right now. He's on a leash. God's in control. He is sovereign over all things. But Satan is at work in this world. Clearly, we see that. And what is his tool? He uses death. Death is his tool. Christ died and then rose again. Death couldn't hold him. He beat Satan at his own game in that he died. And his death, which looking on, I can only imagine the spiritual forces looking on, seeing Jesus dying, much like in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan is going to that stone table and they kill Aslan. And there they are, all of those demonic creatures cheering on as Aslan dies, thinking we've won. We have victory. He's dead. Their greatest tool, death, has won. And then Christ comes alive again. He beat the cosmic powers, the rulers, the authorities of this world at their own game. He died and he came back to life again, forever victorious over them. And one idea here is, he, as Paul is talking about triumphing over them, this could have even meant like the victory procession as a general was coming back into town, triumphing over his enemies in a victory procession. He beat the legalists at their own game. He beat the cosmic powers of this world at their own game because he's 
God. Nothing can stop him and God's eternal purpose and plan for our lives. We are to walk in him. We are filled in him. We're victorious in him because of what he did for you and me and that free gift that we can take for ourselves. We have victory over sin and death. I love singing in Christ alone. There's so many parts to that song that just drive home the reality for you and me. We have victory in Christ over sin and death and no longer has a hold over us because he was victorious. We're to walk in him. We're to be filled in him. We have victory in him. But we have to stay in him and in him alone. Just like that Tesla, it's not going to run on gas. You can't put gas in the Tesla and expect it to work. I can't plug in my Impala and expect it to run. You have to put the right source into it to see it run properly. If you're going to walk this life of faith, if you're going to walk in him and be filled in him and be victorious in him, it is in him and in him alone. You must rely on Christ and in Christ alone to live out this life that is within you not relying on anything else, rooted and built up and grounded in him, established in him, not falling sway or captive to any other thoughts and ideas that are out there seeking to supplement your faith or add something to it, but never being found truly in Christ because he is enough. He is God in his entirety, and he's victorious. And we can totally and completely rely on Christ and in Christ alone to live out this life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your life that you've put in us. We are filled in you. You are God entirely, and yet you say you fill us. We have your Holy Spirit inside of us to live out this life, this, this life of faith. We don't always see what you're doing. We don't always see where you're going, but we can trust you because we know that you are good, and we can walk in you because we are filled in you and experience that victory that is in you. Thank you, Father. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.